A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Anoush, and I'm joined by my colleague Patrick for this week's New Statesman podcast. Stephen is in Wales interviewing Mark Drakeford, so he can't join us. Today we're going to speak about the union and its prospects after the election result. How likely is it that we'll have a second Scottish referendum? And what do the results in Northern Ireland mean for the union? And also, how will the Brexit deal affect Northern Ireland? And you ask us, what's going to happen in the Labour leadership election? So one of the tweets that sort of I dimly remember from the fog of election night was by Alex Massey, a columnist at The Spectator and The Times. And he said it's a very good night for the Conservative Party, but a very bad night for the Conservative and Unionist Party. And since then, the sort of received wisdom has been to say that the prospects of the union are now a lot dimmer since the election result than they were before. What do you think of that kind of analysis? Yeah, well, it's interesting in that it's funny, obviously, that's the instinctive reaction given that the Scottish Tories went from 13 seats to seven. The SNP absolutely walloped both the Scottish Tories and Scottish Labour. They turned... Scotland, after 2017, was a country of sort of hyper-marginals, loads of Mm. SNP holds with double or triple digits. Now, you know, basically... You'd be hard-pressed to find a seat with an SNP majority under a 1,000. There are a couple, but they're very much the rarity. So obviously any reasonable observer will look at that on election night or indeed the morning after and say there's been a great night for the SNP. You know, as the SNP is saying, you know, they've successfully fought an election on Brexit and independence at the same time. The Scottish Tory pitch, which was, you know, vote against the second referendum, more or less failed. Obviously, in the week that's passed, there's been a sort of effort to backpedal a little bit from the Scottish Tories and come up with some sort of post hoc reason why it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Their line now is, oh, the SNP only won 45% of the vote yeah. in a first-past-the-post election in which it encouraged people to vote to stop Brexit. Does that hold up? Well, I mean, the real test will be a second independence referendum, but all the signs point to, i.e. great S&P performance, regardless of its um, slightly debatable performance in devolved government. That's, that's another <laughs> interesting question. Scottish Tory vote holding up, but again, falling back in first-past-the-post terms and the collapse of Scottish Labour point to if... People vote a lot broadly along the same lines in the Hollywood election and with the same things in mind. Which, in 2021. In 2021, which might, which might not be the case. But you've got to expect that Nicola Sturgeon or, again, whoever is leading the SNP at that point, given that there are several bumps in the road to come yep. in terms of Alex Salmond's trial, which is this year, the SNP have a fighting chance of getting a pro 
second independence majority either by themselves or with the Greens. And at that point, it's really hard for the UK government to deny that they have a mandate. Obviously, Boris Johnson is holding firm and saying he won't grant one, but I don't know. At that point, the mandate will be seven years old. A lot will have changed. So, yeah, I mean, we can now see a very clear path to a Scottish independence referendum. Also, Scottish Labour figures are now in their sort of period of introspection, and it looks as if quite a few of them are going to come out and say, well, we can't, We just it's not a coherent position for us to deny a second independence referendum. So we can clearly see the path to a second independence referendum. Whether the SNP can win it is another question. But yeah, we're heading for another flashpoint for sure. Yeah, and what I find really interesting is that line that I've also heard from Conservatives, Scottish or not, about the vote share. Because, of course, they'd probably ignore the fact that there was a higher vote share for people voting for second referendum supporting parties in the country. Yeah, And so arguing vote share, I always think, is dodgy from whichever side, because that's not how our electoral system works. And the fact that that's their sort of immediate line of defence suggests that there's not actually a very good justification, like you say, in five or seven years' time, when it's going to start looking really untenable. Yeah, and especially as the challenge in referenda, you know, they're not partisan exercises. I mean, you can argue that the SNP post-2014 has been so successful because it's become the party political wing of the independence movement. But obviously the challenge for any political party that's, you know, agitating for policy objective that is bigger than them, for instance, Mm. UKIP and um, the Eurosceptic wing of the Tory party, is to build a coalition that is naturally broader than one they would expect or have any right to command in a first-past-the-post election or otherwise. Down that road of, oh, look, the vote share's 45, and Mm. that's what you got in 2014, so actually it's static, is a risky game for unions to play, and it risks, you know, creating complacency. Because the challenge for the SNP and whoever leads the Yes movement in in 2021 will be broadening that coalition, and Brexit has sort of catalysed that process. So, Mm. So, you know, it's not enough to just say the vote share is broadly static because referenda are a different kettle of fish. Yeah, and and the SNP's success in this election, do you think it ties into the fact of what people are saying, people were voting along Brexit lines? Because like you said, you know, their domestic record is something that's been questioned quite a lot by both Scottish Labour and, and, the, and the Tories. And we saw, you know, a resounding triumph for the party that, that's been governing England <laughs> and, well, the whole of the UK as well. So it seems that people aren't voting on domestic record lines, considering we have these governments that people should, by history of sort of UK elections, be quite tired of. But they're voting for them for other reasons. So it kind of gives a boost to the argument that this was a Brexit election. Yeah, it's a sticky wicket for the SNP to play in that they... So many SNP candidates I saw on Twitter, for instance, the one who was trying to unseat David Mundell, said something like, they posted a picture of the YouGov MRP and said, mm. I'm just eight points away from David Mundell. Look, if you're a Scottish Labour voter or a Scottish Lib Dem voter, vote for me, we'll stop Brexit, and I promise I won't take your vote as a vote for independence. Now, when you challenge that, some, some people in the SNP people in the SNP will say, hang on, we're not saying you're voting for independence. We're, you, you know, we're giving the Scottish people a democratic say. But you know, you don't ask for a referendum unless you think you can win one. The point of the referendum is to secure independence and the SNP will campaign for independence. So it's a quite tricky ric- wicket for the SNP. Mm. It wants to say, you know, vote for us, you'll vote tactical, we won't take it as a vote for independence, and then say, we have a mandate for another independence referendum. Because obviously, like, the distinction is important, but effectively, most people hear it as the same thing. Yeah. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. 
That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. And it wasn't just the results in Scotland that made people begin debating the future of the union, was it? Because I know that you've written a lot about this, Patrick, but it was the first time, I think, that more Northern Irish candidates representing the nationalist cause were voted into Westminster seats than the unionists, although Sinn Féin don't take their seats. Is that right? Yes, it is. So in 2017, the story of the night was the wipeout of the two parties of the Nationalist and Unionist Centre, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, the STLP, mm. and the UUP lost their five seats between them to Sinn Féin and the DUP, who won 10 seats, Sinn Féin won seven, and the 18th was Lady Sylvia Herman, the Independent Unionist. And at this election, you know, in the intervening period, Northern Ireland's been without a government for th- almost three years. God, that's a very long time. The health service is falling to bits. So the, the political situation has changed pretty dramatically. Obviously, in 2017, also Martin McGuinness had just died. The you know, sectarian rancour had sort of flared up, given the circumstances of how the executive collapsed. Arlene Foster was in full, what people call, snarling mode, um, <laughs> being sort of truculent and, you know, some people would say, you know, tone deaf to the nationalist community. And so, yeah, we have a much more plural cohort of, pluralist cohort of uh, Northern Irish MPs. Sinn Féin are still on seven, having unseated Nigel Dodds in North Belfast. Regular listeners will know I was quite bearish about the prospects of Nigel Dodds losing his seat, but that just shows you the extent of discontent among nationalists of all flavours, all flavours, all stripes, towards the DUP and how they've handled the the Brexit thing. But Sinn Féin also lost a seat in, in Foyle, in, in Derry, to the SDLP, who have traditionally held that seat. They absolutely walloped Sinn Féin, whose vote halved. You know, Colm Eastwood, the SDLP leader, now has a 16,000 majority, which shows you that, you know, the scale of discontent with Sinn Féin as well. And Sinn Féin have massive swings away from them across the country. And only the fact they unseated Nigel Dodds has sort of disguised from that. You know, the, D- the DUP, who also lost in South Belfast to the SDLP, the most diverse seat in Northern Ireland. The fact that the DUP have had such a bad night detracts from the fact that Sinn Féin, the more militant party of Irish nationalism also had a pretty shocking night. And then in North Down, where Lady Sylvia Herman retired, the DUP thought they were a shoe in for that seat. But Stephen Farry of the Cross Community Alliance Party, again, another outspoken Remainer, he won that at Acanta. And Alliance had massive swings in them across the country as well. So, what's the story of this election in Northern Ireland? Well, given the headline, and it's a massive symbolic moment, sure, that there are notionally more nationalist MPs than unionist MPs. And I say notionally because Mickey Brady, the Sinn Féin MP for New Rian Almar, is not the same thing as Claire Hammer, mm. the SDLP MP for South Belfast, even if on paper, yes, of course, their constitutional preference is the same. Of course, they are both Irish nationalists. But, I mean, it is a category error to say, like, oh, there are nine MPs whose constitutional preference is for United Ireland, as if, you know, that is exactly the same thing or their politics are the same. It's not. And Mm -hmm. especially when you overlay that with the big swings against Sinn Féin 
especially in nationalist constituencies, and the huge swings towards alliance, I think we should interpret this as a vote against politics as usual, i.e. you know, the dysfunctional politics of the past three years. Disenchantment with Brexit, not only among nationalist voters, but also among moderate unionist voters and voters who identify as neither, rather than a groundswell of, you know, we're desperate for a united Ireland. It's not that it doesn't possibly portend the constitutional question changing, but, you know, it's more like, you know, the, the contours of that debate are changing rather than people's answer for now. OK, so it doesn't mean that sort of we're expecting a border poll anytime soon. It's not a swell in sort no, no, of... No, well, look, I mean... You know, as time goes on, yes, of course, the border poll gets more likely for a number of reasons. Demographics is one. You know, the the, the increase in the Catholic nationalist population relative to the unionist population. But you know, you won't see the two SDLP MPs, for instance, get up in the in the House of Commons and say, you know, we want a border poll now. That's just not their not their jam. You know, I asked, I went to Derry to see Colin Eastwood during the campaign. And I said, one of my questions was, will you use your pulpit in the mm. Commons to advocate for Irish unity? He said, well. You know, I always advocate for Irish unity. I am an Irish nationalist, but you have to box clever. You know, Sinn Féin, you know, a big part of John Finucane's pitch, the Sinn Féin candidate, successful. The Sinn Féin MP for North Belfast. God, that's a, a weird sentence. Um, <laughs> you know, a big part of his pitch was, you know, if you vote for me, this is a vote against Nigel Dodds, it is a vote against Brexit, it's a vote for a new inclusive politics, it's not a vote for a border poll. And then Julie, afterwards, Michelle O'Neill, the northern leader of Sinn Féin, was up on a stage saying this is a vote against the union, blah, 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 blah. You know, of course, you know, Colm Eastwood and Claire Hanna want a a new agreed island, as they say. But, you know, they're not going to get up in the Commons and say, you know, this is the case. You know, the case for unity is is watertight. Colm Eastwood's line on this is you have to make Northern Ireland work before you get into divisive and provocative conversations about the constitutional question. And I think if we interpret those results as anything, it's a vote to make Northern Ireland work rather than to make a new United Ireland come into fruition. Okay, that's interesting because I remember on the night thinking that there was far more excitement among the media in Westminster about Joe Swinson losing her seat because that was one party that lost their leader. But she'd actually lost that seat previously, whereas Nigel Dodds, the Westminster leader of the DUP, losing his seat didn't provoke as much excitement, I think, on the night, even though it's far more significant from what yeah, you've been yeah. saying. Well, and look, it speaks to you know, the, the, fa- the structural failure of the Westminster media who've been very interested in the DUP over the past two years because of their starring role, supporting role, whatever, in the Brexit drama. Mm. But, you know, 18 years ago when Nigel Dawes first won that seat, he won it from a guy called Cecil Walker, who's a you know, veteran Ulster unionist. And this was just after the Good Friday Agreement. The unionist community were, you know, political unionism was so divided over the Good Friday Agreement. The UUP were divided themselves over whether to support it or not. Cecil Walker was one of the few UUP MPs who supported David David Trimble in, in doing so, and he was swept away by this great realigning tide. And the consequences of that have been, you know, were massive. Mm. You know, we saw, you know, devolution break down for the next six years before Ian Paisley and Mark McGuinness finally did their Chuckle Brothers routine. And you know, Nigel Dodds losing his seat after eighteen years, just as Cecil Walker did again, portends a new, not quite a new political era in Northern Ireland because Sinn Féin and the DUP are still comfortably the two biggest parties. But it is a watershed that, as you say, has been largely ignored in Westminster. Why is that? Well, because, you know, we see our politics through the prism of Westminster. And given that, you know, the story was Tory majority, I think a lot of people's um, reaction was, 
well, don't have to care about the DUP anymore. They're those, you know, weird, slightly scary people. There's a lot of people in Westminster see them. You know, I bumped into someone in, in the lobby yesterday and they said, Oh, you you sad you don't get to write about Northern Ireland anymore. It's like, well, no, I'll be writing about this till the bitter end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and actually you were writing about it way before. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, and you know, this will and especially given, you know, Boris Johnson still isn't being straight about what his Brexit deal means for yeah. the Irish you know it's it's, a, it's still a massive question well that's the last point i want to get on, on on this subject is now boris johnson has this 80 seat majority he's using that as an endorsement of his deal which he'll be putting through the commons and he's still not being straight with the public about what that means for goods that are passed between northern ireland and the rest of the uk i mean i think there was a time in the campaign where he was saying no checks whatsoever i think he's kind of been fluctuating on that but he's still been very unclear i interviewed michael howard the former tory leader for this week's magazine and he was saying of course there'll be checks of course there'll be checks it just doesn't mean that that's necessarily a border so what does it mean for Northern Ireland, because not only do we have the DUP's sort of influence or scrutiny or blocking ability anymore, but also we have this this deal that could potentially put that barrier in the Irish Sea. Well, we, the thing is, we don't know, mm. and that's probably because the government is being straight about it. And you know, as the the EU, one of the lesser covered things during the campaign was that there was an le- EU memo leaked to the Financial Times in which they said there's no way we can negotiate this in a year, and. Given we know that, given Boris Johnson is not being straight, given that he doesn't really have an incentive to engage with the question, given that you'll have okay, you'll have a, a much more vocal cohort of Northern Irish MPs, all of whom, regardless of constitutional preference or Brexit stance, want clarity on what this means. But you know, you have no there's no political imperative to listen to them. Obviously, Julian Smith, the Northern Ireland Secretary, for as long as he survives, is admired and liked, which is unusual by more or less everyone on that side of the argument, but he's not exactly um a member of Boris Johnson's kitchen cabinet, so he's not <laughs> going to be winning any arguments around the cabinet table. But yeah, like we, we, we just we just don't know. So we given that we know he he has no political incentives to listen to political representatives in Northern Ireland. Yeah. You know, we don't know what the, the deal is. We don't know we know that it probably can't be negotiated in a year and we know now he's, you know, put himself in in a political straitjacket in making, you know, extension of the transition period illegal. He only needs forty MPs to rebel to scupper his Brexit plans and the first meeting of the ERG on Monday night had about 40 Tory MPs at it. So... It's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. And also, I spoke to Steve Baker on Monday. I said, what What are you for in a majority parliament? And he was like, he sent, you know, he said, you know, we're here, you know, we're really happy. We're here to, we're supporting a government that has the right future relationship. And obviously, it, you can read that in one way as quite an anodyne comment, but the other way is the right future relationship. It's very much, a, well, look, our support isn't unconditional. You don't have a blank cheque. So yeah, this could all add up to a very sort of sticky cliff edge for Northern Ireland in, you know, a matter of months. Okay, well, thanks so much, Patrick, for laying that all out. And I really encourage our listeners to read your piece from North Belfast to understand why Nigel Dodds lost his seat and the significance of it. It taught me a lot. And also Alva Ray, our colleague who's unfortunately off sick today, she did a fantastic piece about the Alliance candidate winning. Thanks.
So now's the time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And this isn't one particular question, but a lot of you have been asking us what's going to happen in the Labour leadership election. So we've had a few people who have declared that they definitely will be running. Keir Starmer, Emily Thornbury. Yeah, Emily Thornbury, as of about 10 minutes ago. Is Lisa Nandy official yet? No, Lisa Nandy said on Newsnight last night, you know, Emily Thornbury is actually the only person to say thus far she's definitely going for it. Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer have both done variations on... I'm thinking about this, and if I have the right answer, I will run. Mm-hmm. But given how much media they've both been doing, <laughs> we can probably safely assume that they're they're both going to end up on... Well, I mean, who ends up on the ballot paper is another question that we'll touch on later. But, you know, that they're both going to declare their intent. And obviously at some point this week, we'll probably get a Rebecca Long-Bailey announcement too. Right, OK. And who else is in the running? Jess Phillips is being spoken Jess about Phillips a lot. Jess Phillips is, yeah, is mooted and has been mooted for quite a while in sort of hard Corbyn sceptic circles as the candidate of overt Corbyn scepticism. She hasn't ruled herself in or out. She was careful not to on election night. But yeah, there's, de- there's definitely an appetite among what you might call the... <sighs> I'm, t- I'm trying to think of a, a good way of, of, of putting this. The sort of unreconstructed, avert Corbyn sceptic wing of the mm. Parliamentary Labour Party for a Jess Phillips run. And, you know, you see a lot of pe- you know, 24,000 people have joined the Labour Party in the past week. And you see some people on Twitter, some of the Twitter arty saying, you know, I'm, I'm joining to vote for Jess Phillips. And you occasionally see Tories, although I always think this is such a weird metric to judge anything on saying, oh, God, a Tory MP has texted me saying, we really fear Jess Phillips, yeah, tweets yeah. a Sun journalist. And you're like... I don't know whether this is good faith advice, bad faith advice. Actually, you know, they are really scared of Jess Phillips. But, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll see. But the, the interesting question is whether they can whether they can make the ballot. Yeah. You know, we might have a very small field. Yeah, because the members have more influence now in this leadership election than ever before. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I don't think anyone really understood the significance of the new rules at the time because so much attention was focused on. And this was quite clever politics from, from John McDonnell and others because so much of the focus was on okay, do we reduce the PLP's gatekeeping role? Because it used to be they, you required 15% of the Parliamentary Labour Party to get on the ballot, and that was it. John McDonnell for a long time wanted to reduce it to 5%, the so-called McDonnell Amendment, mm. and instead of compromise, they settled on 10%, which, you know, split the difference. 10 still sounds like a big number. Yep. When the PLP was slightly bigger, that meant, you know, you needed 26 or 25 uh, or 27 MPs, you know, depending on what point or after which by-election or defection you're asking the question, you know, to get on the ballot, you know, that probably makes, you know, a properly can- a candidate of the the hard left, the campaign group, quite difficult to get on the ballot. But as well as the ten, uh, the 10% of the PLP, i.e. 21 MPs, more or less everyone will get that if they want it, Yeah, you need either 33 constituency parties, quite difficult, or this one is so chewy, it's 5% of affiliates, which are trade unions or socialist societies, based on their voting strength at conference, two of which must be trade unions. So de facto, that is, you need two of the big unions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or 33 constituency parties plus 10% of MPs to get on the ballot. Now, you know, the the union votes will be carved up quite quickly. So the challenge for anyone who can't get on the on the union side will be to secure 33 constituency parties. Now, given that only 45 constituency parties nominated Owen Smith in 2016, mm. much has changed since. And, you know, a lot of, you know, this idea that the grassroots have been entirely taken over by Corbynism and the hard left and momentum is 
nonsense a lot of moderate CLP still exist it's going to be really tricky for someone like Jess Phillips to mm. surpass those two hurdles unless she you know unexpectedly pulls a big union endorsement out of the bag. Mm. And I always wonder about the shifting membership because I've done articles over the years speaking to members about how there's discontent over the Brexit position, for example, or discontent over the leadership. And memberships can change, can't they? Particularly when new people are signing up, but also when they see what's happening to their party. You know, people aren't stupid. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the one thing that people forget. And I think it's a real sort of system failure of political journalism is that one, the membership in 2015, okay, it ballooned, but it didn't balloon, you know, the entire hard left, British hard left didn't join the Labour Party at once or to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. A lot of these people were Labour members of, you know, a long time standing. The Labour members who voted for David Miliband. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And like, so like, one, the Labour membership isn't too stupid. Two, they're pro-Corbyn, but they're not necessarily pro-Corbynism. They're not all sort of blind followers of the project. Three... A lot of them aren't, they're not politics nerds like us. Not Mm. every Labour Party member will be listening to discussions like this. A lot of them will be members of the Labour Party who turn on the telly and say, like, oh, Barry Gardner, I see him socket to Emily Maitlis on Newsnight occasionally, I'll vote for him. (laughs) That'll be the extent of some people's reasoning here. So, yeah, and also, like, just because they're pro Corbyn doesn't mean they're Corbynites. And, you know, I had a really interesting conversation with a Labour frontbencher whose majority was slashed from the 10,000s to about, you know, four, three thousand today. And he was saying, uh, God, source protection there. Yeah, I was uh, going to say it. <laughs> he or she, he or she said that plenty of their majorities were slashed. So, yes, you know, exactly. It could be anyone. Two, three, four, five, six. You know, <laughs> sing, low single figures. You know, there, there was they were saying the most interesting group of members they had out with them on the doorstep. Obviously, you have the unreconstructed, you know, pro Corbyn wing who will basically vote for whoever Jeremy is seen to anoint or whoever seen the closest to Jeremy. But they said, you know, it's really interesting taking Corbynistas from my CLP out on the doors. And you see this with, you know, intelligent people on the on the left of the Labour Party, supporters of the leadership, uh, are adjusting to this new reality in quite an interesting way if you, if you read their comment in terms of, you know, how does the left continue to win the argument internally or at least preserve as much of this project as possible. They were saying, so this MP was saying, you know, well, the doors... Knock on the door, you know, as many people on the door said, you know, said, I can't vote for you because Corbyn. Some canvassers will say, well, it's all the media, you're an idiot. But they said, the sw- and I think they're right, they said the swing constituency in this leadership election are those members who have backed Corbyn twice, loved what happened in 2017, have seen what's happened now mm. and said, well, we have to take this Christian on board. And that creates a really interesting space for someone like Keir Starmer. The striking thing is nobody, maybe Jess Phillips will, maybe Yvette Cooper, if she runs, will encroach on this space a little bit. But nobody has been saying the problem was the ideology Mm. or the nature of the policies. Yes, you'll get there were too many policies, the offer was too big and unbelievable and unwieldy. But Keir Starmer hasn't come out and said, nor has Emily Thornberry come out and said, well, the problem is we've gone too far from the left, we need to lurch back to the centre, or, you know, Corbynism is fancy politics. It's all, yes, we have a great offer, the case for a, Labour, a radical Labour government is strong, but, you know, we need fresh leadership. And that's the really interesting... And I think that's a message that will cut through to members who, as you say, know what's happened and know broadly why it's happened. Mm, and I think that, that message will cut through to members, but also it's probably what they're reporting back from, from their canvassing as yeah. well. Some residual sort of optimism from 2017, sure, because that manifesto cut through and, and chimed with a lot more voters than expected. But also, you and I know from going out reporting that actually the problem wasn't 
firstly the policy offer was it it might have been that we don't trust him to deliver it or it might have been it's too much or how are they going to how are they going to afford all of those policies but it wasn't necessarily the policies themselves yeah no no exactly and exactly and the argument the policy argument has been has basically been won mm. and anyone who tries to push back against that too hard will find the labor membership who let's not forget like you know have always been anti austerity who always whose instincts are well, it seems redundant to say this, but are left of centre on more or less everything. Mm. That creates a really interesting space for people like Keir Starmer, Emily Thornberry, to say the question we're asking is primarily about leadership. This is a leadership election rather than a, you know, a poly- there is no real... Rather than a direction election. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. The direction is in terms of presentation and a little bit on Brexit, although that, with any luck, that will be that problem will be solved for them. So yeah, it's going to be really fascinating. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Patrick Maguire. We're recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. And our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. (laughs) 